It's a memorable song from an iconic moment in a very classic movie when, in The Sound of Music, when Maria falls in love with Captain Von Trapp, they sing a love song to each other, which you could probably all sing along to, right? Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth, for here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should... So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It's a beautiful love song. But I want you to think about the words, though. Is it true? Is it true? Many many people in our world believe that nothing comes from nothing, and nothing ever could. Much like karma, right? That the better you are, the more good you'll get. And the worse you are, the worse your life or your future lives will be. I suspect that many of us have even tried to incorporate some views like this into our Christian beliefs. Whether or not we should... (laughs) And that's the question, really. Should we? Is this the way the world works? Is this the way God works? Is this the way that we should view everything, good or bad, that comes into our lives? This is is one of the underlying questions that is asked throughout the book of Job. Do good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad? Job had to wrestle with this question, among other questions. And today, so will we. So to do so, please turn with me to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4, which you can find on page 418 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. What we'll learn today from this really ancient book still has huge implications for our lives today. So I I hope your heart is soft to hear them, to understand them, and uh, I want to invite you to once more pray with me together towards that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that your truth would really come forth. More than anything else, more than anything I say, more than anything that is on these pages, that we would understand what you have to say to us through them. Pray that we would discern truth from error, and that we would know what your will is for our lives, and that we would obey and go forth as followers of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here over the last month or are familiar with Job's story, you'll know how his story began. Job had been a great, godly, wealthy, happy man, the greatest in the world even, greatest man in the world. But then God and Satan had basically made a wager in heaven on whether or not Job would continue to worship God and fear God if he had nothing. So they tested Job. 
by taking everything away. In rapid succession, Job lost his flocks and his servants and his livelihood and his children. And as we saw, God really won the challenge when Job passed the test and he kept worshiping. But then Satan challenged God again to a similar wager, only this time Job's health was taken away in a brutal way. And yet amazingly, Job still passed the test. He still worshipped. He still gave glory to God. But as Job sat miserable and broken in the town dump, three of his friends gathered to, to console him. And after weeping together, they sat in really stifling silence for seven days and nights. When finally, Job broke the silence by whimpering out a poetic but, but dark lament. He cursed the day of his birth and wished to be wiped from existence, hoping for death. We saw in this that it wasn't wrong for a true believer to to feel this way or to express these emotions to God. Because even in the midst of this, Job still didn't curse God. He still viewed God the right way. Job certainly did, even as he ended his lament in a, in a seemingly hopeless state. In the last verse of chapter 3, it said, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Today we'll see one of Job's friends speak up for the first time, responding to Job's lament. And the first to, to talk is Eliphaz who is thought to be the oldest and most respected of Job's friends. Eliphaz was from Teman, which is believed to be part of Edom, or modern-day Jordan, if you know that area in the Middle East. And in the ancient times, Edom and Teman were renowned for being a center of wisdom. People looked to them for wisdom. And so we hope that as this Temanite, Eliphaz, speaks up, that he can shed some light of wisdom on Job's situation. After hearing Job's really despairing cries and and questions, Eliphaz felt he needed to say something. But he started this conversation tentatively, very carefully. If you look at the beginning of verse 4, or chapter 4, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? So he, he knew that hurt people often lash back in hurtful ways or find it difficult to listen. So he cautiously went, hey, hey Job, are you going to be okay if I say a few things? <laughs> because I, I really feel I need to say some things to you. And what he says next, I think we should give Eliphaz the benefit of the doubt in his tone and his motive. As far as we can tell, Eliphaz intended his advice to be a very gentle and kind rebuke to his friend. But, before we go any further, there's a major question we have to address. 
Because we're going to see a lot of what Job's friends have to say in the weeks ahead. And the question is, how are we supposed to interpret what they say? How are we supposed to know what is right or wrong in their advice? What is true or false? Because a lot of it is going to sound really good. So, but we know also that a lot of it isn't actually good. So how do we tell the difference here? I think there are several things that can help us as we try to discern this truth from error. One, the the narrator of Job may give us some clues from time to time, especially if what the friends say contradict the facts of Job's story as we know them. Okay, well, the truth of his story. They may contradict at times. Two, Job's responses can also help us. When he speaks up himself, especially as he responds to them, especially if he is strenuously objecting to anything. Later on in the book, when God himself speaks up, he vindicates Job, even while he really lays into Job's friends. We should really, I believe we should read the whole book through the lens of one verse near the end, which says this in chapter 42. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, so the guy who speaks today, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And that's the third thing that can help us. The narrator's words, Job's words, and God's words. And last but not least, we should consider what the rest of God's words says as well. Because we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because God does not contradict himself. So if we're confused by something that Job's friends say, we should think, well, according to the Bible as a whole, is this true or false? All right? So that's what we're going to seek to do. Now, you're going to see soon what I mean by this, but a lot of what Eliphaz says sounds really good. And that's because there's a lot of truth in his and his friend's words. But that is precisely the nature of almost all false teaching out there. In the world, whenever you encounter false teaching, you're going to find it's like this. We somehow expect that, that false teachers are going to come to us with bold and aggressive and controversial and loud teachings right from the start. Or they'll come up to us and say, hi, I'm a heretic. Follow me, <laughs> right? But no, they, are, they may be wolves, but they're likely wearing sheep's clothing. They're going to look like sheep. They're going to look like believers. So this is why false teaching can creep in everywhere. They, the false teachers are pastors in many very popular churches across the world. There are are false teachers writing books that are on the stores of Christian bookstores. They may be recommended to you by Christian friends. They'll be on family Christian radio. Be wolves in sheep's clothing. Almost all false teaching is a mixture of truth And error. They'll say a lot of good things, but they'll pollute the good stuff with just a little bit of bad. Which makes it super crucial that we learn to develop our discernment for truth. 
We have to know what is true and what is false, what's good and what's evil. Sometimes our spiritual health will depend on it. Sometimes our souls may depend on it. So today, what I'm going to do is something pretty unique. I'm going to preach through what Eliphaz tells Job, and then we're going to dissect it together. All right, so before I tell you, though, see if you can spot what's wrong with Eliphaz's teachings. It's good practice for you. What doesn't line up with Job's story that you've seen so far? What doesn't line up with what Job said so far? What doesn't line up with God's word? The main points I give you today will be Eliphaz's thoughts, which may be right or wrong, okay, or both. And then you'll see some blanks toward the right side of your notes that will fill in later. I think I maybe broke a record for how many blanks I gave you this week, but have fun with that. One note here, don't leave early today or else you may get a really bad sermon, okay? So let's go ahead and look at what Eliphaz says first to Job. It says this in chapter 4, verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who, was, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And pause there for now. What in these verses, Eliphaz basically tells Job, you've helped so many people in your life. You've strengthened the weak. But now that you're weak, you're throwing in the towel too early and too easily. You should have confidence because you're so good. Basically what he says, verse 6, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Here's his first point. The innocent should prosper, and the wicked should suffer. In this moral world, the innocent do prosper, and the wicked do end up suffering. Job, if you were with us last week, he's been talking a lot about dying. (laughs) But Eliphaz is like, you're not going to die? Not if you're truly innocent like you claim. Verse 7, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Now put aside any skepticism about this point for now. We're going to come back to that. Given God's promises in his word, does this not seem like a generally true principle? 
For example, in Deuteronomy 6, 3, God says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do my commandments, so that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God does seem to reward those who fear and who follow him. And the other side of things, God does seem to judge or curse those who are wicked. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge, and he feels indignation. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies, but his mischief returns upon his own head. Here in Job, Eliphaz says that the wicked sow trouble for themselves. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. My family is enjoying the fruits of our vegetable garden that we planted earlier this year. And uh, a couple months ago, we we planted seeds for green beans and carrots and peas and, and lettuce and other things. And now, a couple months later, almost every day, there are new yummy things to harvest, fresh right out of the garden. But we didn't plant green beans and expect to harvest bananas. Okay, that just doesn't happen. Eliphaz says that the wicked, it's like the wicked are planting a garden, and in it they're planting seeds of trouble. Therefore, they should expect to harvest trouble one day, reaping what you sow. He also says that the wicked can sometimes seem as intimidating as lions, dangerous lions. Like if you met a lion in the wilderness, you'd be shaken in your boots. Why? Because you know that if they wanted to, they could tear you to shreds and have you for lunch. The wicked can seem that way at times, very intimidating to us, very scary. But Eliphaz's point is that even the fiercest lions stand no chance against God. Okay, by the breath of God they perish, verse 9. By the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So, what did all this mean for Job? Well, Eliphaz was trying to encourage him at this point. He was trying to reassure him that there was indeed a moral order to things. Right? Francis Anderson says, Eliphaz endorses Job's faith and tries to revive his spirit with the reminder that Job's whole life had been built on the belief that God helps the good and hinders the bad. But then Eliphaz's tone changes slightly as he begins telling a personal story. And what he recalls in this story is actually downright spooky. It's nightmarish. Verse 12 says this. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. So are you following this? 
Eliphaz once had a crazy vision while he was in deep sleep. It's like a, a ghost story, pretty much. A spirit glided by his face, and it left him absolutely terrified. Verse 14, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. And then the spirit spoke to him. Imagine in a creepy voice, okay? Verse 16, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, in his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Now, Eliphaz seems to think that this was an angel delivering a message, a very important message to him. And and that because it was something supernatural and mystical, that the message had to be authoritative. But... Think with me. Assuming that this really did happen, was this really a message from God? There are other supernatural beings out there. Deceptive ones at that. It's a very ambiguous story. It's hard to tell whether this was a good or bad spiritual encounter. What we can tell is what Eliphaz's main point was, which sounds like a fairly reasonable point. It's this. No one can be truly innocent before God. Okay, that's his point. No one can actually be right and pure and innocent before God in the sight of God. The heart of what Eliphaz was trying to get across is in verse 17. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Given what was said after this, the implied answer to these questions is no. He's like, not even God's top servants or his angels can claim this distinction. Even in his servants he puts no trust, in his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. We dwell in houses that are very weak whenever earthquakes or typhoons or hurricanes or tornadoes come along. Our bodies, which give us our very physical existence, are made from dust and will disintegrate into dust again. And our lives are so fragile, we might as well be moths. How do you kill a moth? Fly swatter will do the trick, right? Your fingers, if you can catch it. Eliphaz was saying, we're not that impressive or strong or invincible at all. And morally, we are fallen creatures. And God, he's way above us. How dare we ever think 
that we could actually be right before God. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? No. Can humans be in right relationship with God to stand clean and pure in his presence? This is a critical question that's actually going to be repeated numerous times in Job. So first, if you're following his train of thought, Eliphaz was like, Job, you've got, you've got reason to hope if you're innocent. But maybe, maybe you should question whether or not you really are innocent. Because truly, no one can stand before God and claim to be right with him. Further, given how fallen we are, we should expect to suffer. That's where Eliphaz goes next. In chapter 5. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool. Jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come up from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. His point in all of this, we must not be bothered so much by our suffering. Okay? We should expect to suffer, therefore we shouldn't be bothered by it so much. Eliphaz's first words in chapter 5 must have sounded terrible to Job. He basically says that no one would hear Job's prayers. Verse 1, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Now, he's speaking of angels there. Now, imagine if one of your loved ones passed away. And I come to your house to visit you as your pastor, and I take your hands, and I, I tell you, you should pray, but really, no one's going to hear you. Now, it sounds totally heartless, right? But Eliphaz was trying to make a a much larger point. We're going to see later. He thought Job was being disciplined by God. And why would prayer ever stop discipline? It wouldn't. God wouldn't go against his own work. But his main point in this section was, stop being so vexed. (laughs) Suffering's normal. Surely vexation kills the fool, jealously slays the simple. He then says, I've seen it happen time and time again. Foolish people take root, but they end up crushed. Right? And then the famous verses in verse 6 and 7. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. There's a lot of confusion about what these verses are actually saying. Some things that the something that the sparks flying upward refers to an old Canaanite god of destruction who would 
as it was believed, would shoot up flaming, a- flaming arrows at people from below. Others just say this was saying that troubles are innate and inevitable. Maybe it's both. Okay? Trouble doesn't just happen. It doesn't come up from nowhere, but it does inevitably come. Christopher Ashe says that Eliphaz was advising this. We live in a world under the curse of God, a world of evil, a world in which the powers of the underworld are causing trouble for us all the time. That is just how it is. And only a fool rails against this. So instead of whining so much, take it in stride. Okay? Don't be so hot and bothered. Because man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And Eliphaz isn't done offering advice. Verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. This is really the heart of his appeal to Job. Listen, Job, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. I would seek after God. I would rededicate my life to him and his cause. I'd make sure that I really am in the right with him. The funny thing is that Job was really already doing this. And he continues to do this. But apparently he wasn't doing it in quite the way Eliphaz wanted him to. And then Eliphaz basically said, don't you know who God is? Don't you know who God is, Job? He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of that. He he launches into this beautiful poem of praise. Verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. His main point here? God is great and just, even in our suffering. God is great and just. He's he's wonderful. He's fair, even in the midst of our suffering. Suffering. Alphas has been really gloomy so far, but suddenly he's cheerful. I, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. God does great things we can't even imagine. In his providence, he graciously gives rain to the earth. He looks after the, the lowly and the needy and the grieving. Meanwhile, he, he justly judges the malicious and the scheming, he says, the crafty and and the wily, which gives hope to the poor and the broken as they see injustice reversed by God. Verse 16, so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Come on, Job. 
Don't you want to trust a God like that? Seek him. Commit your cause to him. And surely, even your troubles will be reversed. Injustice will fail. And this all leads to Eliphaz's final point of argument, which essentially boils down to this, that we should accept God's discipline to attain his blessing. We should accept God's discipline in order to attain his blessing on us. Look at verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He's pleading with Job. There's so much blessing just waiting for you. If only, all you got to do, all you got to do is to accept that God's disciplining you. Submit to that. And, and Eliphaz did have a point. If this was God's discipline, Job should have accepted it and submitted to it. If for no other reason than for the blessings God would pour out on him once he did. Verse 19, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. You shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Job, there's a blessing coming. Hold on to that hope. Don't despair. If you, if you repent, he'll deliver you from every trouble that comes your way. Famine won't kill you. War won't destroy you. Slander won't hurt you. You're going to laugh in the face of danger. You'll fear nothing. Your home will be happy. Your children will be many. And you'll live to a ripe old age. It's a promise of bountiful blessing. If, if only you, you grin and bear God's discipline on your life. God will not harm you forever. He's teaching you something. Hold on to that, Job. And lastly, you saw this. Eliphaz confidently says, verse 27, Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. We all know this is true, Job. So do you. So, we come to the end of this spiel. And we ask, is it true? Is Eliphaz right? Should we take his sermon to heart? Well, like I said earlier, many things he says are true. 
but some things are off base, and a little yeast leavens the whole loaf. <laughs> Mix in a little error, and it corrupts the truth. In summary, you could, you could sum up Eliphaz's message this way. Job, I want to encourage you to be consistent in your moral beliefs and trust that the innocent will come out on top. Okay? Be, be realistic, though, about our moral condition before God. Be humble. Know that, that trouble comes to everyone. Seek out God. Gladly submit yourself to His loving discipline. He's a good God. What in the world could be wrong with a message like that? Let's be discerning. Let's attempt to distinguish what is true here and what is not. As we go, I'll give you something to add to each point in order to try to correct it, okay? So our first point was this. The innocent should prosper, and the wicked should suffer. Main problem with this point is that it's unrealistic. Okay? Correct it this way. The innocent should prosper, and the wicked should suffer, but this doesn't always happen. Okay? What Eliphaz says is proverbially true. Galatians 6, 7. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Right? But, while it may be a generally true principle, it's also remarkably naive and unrealistic. Someone just has to look around at the world and observe that this is not true. Or not fully true. Many evil men and women have prospered for many years. Some of them never really suffering. ISIS is currently extremely brutal and extremely wealthy. What would, what would this point say to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith globally? Did their personal sins bring on their suffering? Highly unlikely. What about the rape or trafficking or abuse of young children? Are they sinners? Sure. But are they suffering horribly because they're guilty? No! You generally reap what you sow, but the wicked also prosper and the innocent also suffer. So Eliphaz was offering false encouragement to Job where there wasn't necessarily any. In Job's case, his suffering was extreme. His story didn't fit the Proverbs anyway. The other problem with this point is that Eliphaz was expecting things now instead of later. And that's why I added a yet at the end of this point. In parentheses there. Truth is, the wicked will receive their just rewards. They will. But not necessarily on earth. 
God's people will indeed prosper in eternity, not necessarily here and now. Eliphaz missed the the vital point that the judgment and the harvest come at the end of the age, not sooner. And that's really key. What about point two? It sounded pretty right. No one can truly be innocent before God. Isn't that true? Well, yes, but no. (laughs) In a word, it's incomplete. It needs more. It should say this. No one can truly be innocent before God apart from God's grace. Okay? That's what it really should say. No one can truly be innocent before God apart from God's grace. Tim Keller says this. Even though Job's friends can piece together strings of technically true statements, their pastoral mistakes stem from an inadequate grasp of the grace of God. They have a moralistic theology. If you take the grace of God out of faith in God, you're left with moralistic legalism. You'll you'll get a heartless religion, which really leads to hopeless nihilism. No one can do it. Think about it this way. Nowhere on earth is there a man in the right with God. What does that sound like to you? Maybe Satan's accusation back in chapter 1? I'm sure this was unwittingly, but because of this, Eliphaz became Satan's spokesperson. Job, by the grace of God, was, in fact, upright and blameless in God's sight. Not because he was sinless, but because he was repentant and God had mercy. Satan, and unfortunately here Eliphaz, wanted to rip God's grace and mercy out of the equation. The other way this point was massively incomplete is because God's redemption was incomplete at the time. Eliphaz couldn't have known that one person would show up a couple millennia later and totally prove this point wrong because he did live a perfectly innocent life in God's sight. And then this one same man died the death of the guilty in order to, don't miss this, in order to make people righteous in God's sight. Hebrews 10.14, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, can a mortal be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Because of God's grace and most specifically through Jesus, the answer is yes. 
This means that you too, though you are mortal, though you are sinful, can be in the right before your maker. If you will leave your sin and cleave to Christ, he will save you. And he will give you his own perfect, spotless righteousness. So he's saying, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I desperately pray that you would run to Christ today. Run to Christ, place your trust in him alone, not yourself, not your religion, not your family background. Not your good works. Place it in Christ. It's the only way you'll get before God and be right. If you have questions or objections or struggles with this, please talk to me. Nothing is more important than this. God's grace is there for you. Let's... uh, Let's blaze through the final three points that Eliphaz has made. Number three, basically said, we must not be bothered so much by our suffering. The word I choose to describe this point is insensitive. It's also wrong. <laughs> we must not be bothered so much by our suffering, or rather, we may rightfully be bothered. Consider the way Job lamented in his misery last chapter. This was not wrong for him to do so. Even though he was depressed and despairing of his life, he was rightfully bothered by it all. We'll see more of this in Job's response to Eliphaz next week as well. But it's fairly easy to see that Eliphaz was needlessly insensitive to Job's plight here, especially at the beginning of chapter 5. I mean, what he describes the fool going through Sounds a lot like what Job went through. <laughs> and when he talked about the, the fool's children being crushed, boy, that would hit way too close to home. Don Carson says, Eliphaz does not mean Job is a fool, but we wince at Eliphaz's insensitivity to Job's misfortune when he speaks of the fool's house being cursed. Fourth point. God is great and just, even in our suffering. Now, this one sure sounded good, right? Here's my response to this point. Amen. (laughs) All right? As far as we can tell, everything about this point was true. Okay? If you want the best, most truth-filled part of Eliphaz's speech, this is it. From verse 8 to 16 in chapter 5. Everything he says about God here is true when you check it by the rest of Scripture. Okay? God is great and does do unsearchable, innumerable, marvelous things. Okay? He is providential. He does lift high the humble. He does frustrate the wicked. God is the great reverser of fortunes. This is all true. In fact, a part of this poem is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, when he says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, 
He catches the wise in their craftiness. So you know this is this is true. The only thing we could nitpick here is that Eliphaz maybe shouldn't have applied this directly to Job. Because as Anderson says, true words can be thin medicine for a man in the depths. These words were true. They weren't they just weren't overly helpful at this moment in time. Besides, Job knew this already. It's why he still worshipped, because God was still great. Even though Eliphaz made much of God here in these several verses, most of the rest of his talk was ironically making less of God. He was domesticating God, removing the mystery and removing the grace of God. And he thought it was his idea, his opinion, that God could be managed with morality by pushing all the right buttons. But this makes light of God's sovereignty. Eliphaz didn't know the whole story. And this leads to the final point. We should accept God's discipline to attain his blessing. This point is rather presumptuous and sadly misguided. Sorry, that's two words. Eliphaz presumed that Job's suffering was discipline. It wasn't. And also, his suggestion to pursue God's blessings was misguided. It's not entirely false, as those who God disciplines are indeed blessed. But in order to correct the point, I have to nearly rewrite it entirely. Okay? We should accept God's discipline to attain his blessing, or rather, we should unpresumptuously accept everything God sends us for his glory's sake. We should unpresumptuously accept everything God sends us for his glory's sake alone. Hebrews 12 tells us, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is precisely because I love my sons that I must discipline them as their parents. Same with God. We are disciplined because he loves us and he wants us to grow. So, absolutely, we should submit ourselves to God's discipline. It's good for us. We just can't assume that any suffering we are undergoing is God's discipline for sure. Instead of assuming something is discipline, we really should just accept everything as from God. Okay? Was Job being disciplined? No. We know the backstory. We know what was actually going on. We know he wasn't. But was God sending these things his way? Yes. In his sovereign providence, he was. 
God agreed to the tests. He allowed Satan to attack. And he had his reasons. Eliphaz was essentially preaching a health and wealth gospel to Job. If you're righteous, God won't do these things to you. But what about when he does? All the the promises of, of blessing that Eliphaz offered were really nothing but empty promises. As Ash says, all of this is beautiful to describe, but must have come as a succession of cruel barbs into Job's heart. He has lost his farm, his animals, his offspring, and his health. None of these blessings are for him, or so it would seem. There's an irony here, for Eliphaz encourages Job to fear God for exactly the reason Satan said he had always feared God, for the rewards of piety rather than because God is God. You get that? Satan said that Job followed God because of the blessings. Now Eliphaz was telling Job to follow God because of the blessings. Therefore, we must reject Eliphaz's advice and take Job's earlier comments to heart once more. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can thank God for our homes and our health and our jobs and our spouses and our kids and our barbecue spare ribs. We must worship God for who he is. For his glory's sake alone. For he is worthy. So unlike the sound the music tells us, our present and our futures is not based on what we've done. It doesn't happen that way. Once God's grace enters the picture, we can stand before God as mortals before their maker. And instead of boasting in ourselves or bemoaning our failures, we must end up saying instead, you know, somewhere in our wicked and miserable past, God must have done something good. Let's pray. God, help us to see your truth, to understand it. May we be blown away by your grace. Help it to 
to really rock our worlds. To just eradicate any forms of false teaching and morality that we have lived by, that we have followed all the rules trying to gain your favor, your blessings, instead of just receiving your grace. May we worship you for who you are. May we follow you. May we fear you, for you are great, no matter what happens to us. In Jesus' name.